and the, the Jews in dispersion, driven from their homeland, headquartered in the area uh, that I believe this letter was addressed to. And he addresses to them a series of encouragements, things that are proven, things tested, tried, found adequate in every situation. And as he comes to the last paragraph in this book, he talks of a proven victory. Read with me, if you would, follow as I read, 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant or watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood or your brethren in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little or a little while, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Carelessness, I think, is the thing that was uppermost in Peter's mind as he comes to conclude this letter. Carelessness in the Christian life can be devastating. You know, most of the things that happen to us as Christians are not major things. It seems as though we can handle the major struggles of life. But when we fall and when we fail and when we turn aside uh, to the right or to the left from the way in which the Lord leads us. It is generally because of some little thing, not something great, but something small, seemingly insignificant. Now here, Peter says the primary reason we need not to be careless is because we have an enemy who never is careless. He never rests, and wherever you go, he will be found. If you come into the sanctuary to worship the Father, you will find, as we always do in our thoughts and in the little distractions and irritations that he brings across our path, that he likewise is there, very careful, very watchful, to keep us from what the Lord would say to our hearts. You can go within the family unit, the most intimate of all relationships, the most closely corresponding example we have to show the world what it means to belong to Him. And He is there. You can go, as missionaries still do, into places where the gospel has never penetrated, where civilization has never gone. And when we arrive there, we discover that he was there first. Wherever you go, he will be found. The disciples, even within 
the circle of the disciples, Satan, had a foothold and an influence. About 12 or 13 years ago, I was doing one of my favorite things, which was browsing through a little bookshop in uh, College Station, Texas, down the road from Texas A&M University. And I picked up a copy of a book that I had heard about but had never seen before. The book was called The Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. And early on in the pages of that book, I found the Satanist counterpart to the Ten Commandments called the Nine Satanic Statements. Now, I do not remember but one of them, but I have never forgotten it. I chuckled a little bit when I read it, but periodically through the years it has come back to haunt me, and I believe in many cases it is true. In the Bible, of those who worship Satan as their God, this is one of the satanic statements that correspond to our Ten Commandments. And I quote, Satan is the best friend the church has ever had and has kept her in business all these years. Someone paraphrased that years ago, I think, probably before LaVey wrote his book saying Satan long ago quit fighting churches and now he is joining them. His hand can be seen in every attempt to dilute the Word of God or to substitute anything else, anything man-made, any alternative for it. Peter's fear is not that the enemy of their souls will overwhelm them. He is not deeply concerned that they will be inundated uh, with things that they cannot handle. His fear is rather that through carelessness they will become turned slightly to the right or to the left from the narrow way and seek human solutions for the things that they face. And by seeking human solutions, that they will bear themselves to the attacks of Satan. You know, it's a very common temptation. Uh, the children of Israel found it when they entered the land of promise. They had such a remarkable victory in their first encounter with the enemy that the next day as they basked in the glory of a great defeat, Someone came to the general and said, we now need to take the village of Bethel, but it's just a little place. Let us uh, not take the whole army up there. Think of all the cost in uh, manpower and all of the logistical problems. Just give us a few troops and we'll go and defeat Bethel. And turning from the plan of battle and the plan that God had given them, they went off in their own direction and they were soundly defeated not because the enemy was great but because they were careless and they turned to a human solution instead of following the way that the Lord had pointed for them to go in this passage Peter tells us of the victory that 
can be ours as we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and as we follow those that he has appointed to guide and to lead us. When we do, Peter says, he will go to war for us. He will defeat the enemy who will flee from us when we resist him in obedience to the Lord. Now, in the passage before us this morning, I want you to notice two or three things. Notice, first of all, in verses 8 and 9, as Peter shares about a proven victory, notice conflict. Conflict is always the price of victory. Conflict is always the price of victory. Now, I'm not preaching on the whole armor of God, but let me cross-reference to that concept and say this. You do not have a choice whether you will be involved in spiritual warfare or not. The only choice is whether you will be equipped for it or whether you will be at the mercy of the enemy. That is your only choice. Conflict is the price of victory. Peter says, be sober, be watchful, because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, in the original language, it would read something like this in a more literal translation. Where he says, be sober and watchful, you could say very accurately, be calm and collected. And the, the idea of being watchful, of being vigilant, is the idea of someone who had nodded off to sleep and someone shook them and said, wake up, keep your eyes open, be alert. So he said, be calm and collected, having been aroused from your sleep because you have a prowling opportunistic enemy who never rests. And the word devour, in, you know, it comes across in English like you eat something uh, very ravenously. Well, in the Greek, the word literally means to drink blood. And Peter says, your prowling opportunistic enemy who never rests is looking for blood to drink. Conflict will always be the price of victory. You know, there are some folks who do not believe in a personal devil. Uh, it was hard for uh, me to believe that for a number of years, but there really are folks who believe that, who do not believe in a personal enemy of God and of the believer. They believe in a, a principle of evil, but it has no form, it has no personality, it has no power. That is exactly what the enemy of God wants them to believe. And until and unless an individual recognizes the enemy and stirs himself against the enemy, that enemy will leave him alone. You know, it is not certain what appearance Satan may take as he touches your life and mine today. 
but it is for sure that he's not a little red man with a tail and a pitchfork. Now that much is certain. In Ezekiel and in Isaiah, his name is called in English Lucifer. Do you know what it means? It means son of the morning star, the most beautiful of all of God's creations. And when the one time his appearance is described in the Bible, as it is by the Apostle Paul, he is described as an angel of light. An angel of light. Whatever it is we think he may be, he is not. Whenever we are not careful, he is there, and he will never appear as the enemy. He will appear as a friend. He will appear as the voice of God. Satan has no words of his own. He has no truth in him. And everything that he is is the exact antithesis of everything that God is. Therefore, you may know that whenever in your spiritual life, in the life of your church, in the life of your family, there comes a deviation, a direction, a temptation to dilute the Word of God, to divert your attention from living for the Lord Jesus, you may know whatever that temptation is, the exact opposite is the will of God. When he appears, he appears as an angel of light, so ready to turn us from God's way to human solutions. This is seen many times throughout the Scriptures. When the eldest son of Isaac, uh, Esau, had come in from hunting or from the fields and he was weary and, and he was depressed and tired, there was temptation to sell his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of soup. Always turning to human solutions. Noah had seen the power of God as few men ever have in the history of the world. And when after all of those months in the ark they came down, the first thing Noah did was plant a vineyard. And then when the fruit of the vine was ripe and he had picked it to make wine and he allowed it to ferment, he celebrated the grace of God by getting drunk and exposing himself to his sons. Peter, bold in the face of the guard that came to arrest the Lord Jesus, swinging his sword so wildly he took the ear right off the servant of the high priest. Yet scarcely a few hours later, as he has followed at a distance, warming himself at a little fire, he denies that he knows him. And whenever there is a Jonah, who wants to go to Tarshish in the opposite direction from where God wants him to go to proclaim the truth. There will always be a ship at the dock to take him away. When man sinned, justice got on Satan's side. 
One of the glimpses we have into the counsels of God come in the book of Job. And there, as a prosecuting opponent, Satan stands before the Father accusing us. But when Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, justice and grace and mercy eliminated the right of the enemy to convict us before the Father. In verse 9, he says, Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings uh, you experience now are experienced by your brethren in the world. The successful resistance in verse 9 presupposes the submission and the obedience of verses 1 through 8. In verse 5, that uh, before of this chapter, he, he quotes Proverbs 3, 34, as does the writer of the book of James, where he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter says, take heart, your sufferings are not unique. I don't think there is anybody who has not felt probably more than once that nobody else has gone through what you've gone through. Peter does not, and neither do the other New Testament writers, minimize the fact that those, as Peter also says, who live godly will suffer. He doesn't minimize that, but what he does say is that you are not alone. Paul says, you've suffered no temptation, you've been through no experience, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will always, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may escape. He describes the enemy here as a roaring lion. I am told that very often as lions in their uh, pride, their groups hunt, that the young lions stalk the prey, while the old lions who have slowed down, whose teeth are broken, who have little strength, roar to frighten the prey. Satan is like a roaring lion because the Lord Jesus kicked his teeth in at the cross. Warfare is there. Battle is always around. But we must never forget that though conflict is the price of victory, the battle has already been won, not by the price that we have paid, but by the price that the Lord Jesus has paid. And notice that we are not protected from attack, we are protected in the attack. If you would escape the battlefield, if you could find a way to do that, you would also escape the provident hand of a sovereign God who protects you. Conflict is the price of victory. Then notice in verses 10 and 11, consistency. Consistency is the practice of victory. 
Peter says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Peter begins his letter. If you would read the first few verses, Peter begins his letter with grace. He comes to the last word and he ends it with grace. And throughout his letter, it is sprinkled with grace. All that we are and all that we can ever be is by the grace of God. Now, grace, as you know so well, is unmerited favor. We do not deserve it. You know, a lot of folks who understand that you don't deserve salvation before you get it, but somehow they believe that you must deserve it after you get it in order to keep it. That is an impossibility. You cannot do it. There is in us, in our flesh, the Scripture say, dwells no good thing. We have no merit. We have no goodness. Peter says our sufferings are just a little thing. Some of the translations say that after you have suffered just a little, some say for just a while, for a short period of time, or just a little bit, our sufferings are so small compared to what the Lord Jesus went through for us. Notice that Peter calls him the God of all grace. What a small statement for such a great truth. The psalmist, hiding in the wilderness from his enemies, said, The Lord is my tower of refuge. He is my sword my shield. He is the armor that protects my insides from the sword of my enemies. What is it that you need? He is the God of all grace. Is it for fair sunshine such as we know today? It is the gift of God's grace. Is it for the softening and nourishing rain to bring, make the earth bring forth her bounty? It is the gift of his grace? Is it for dew in the morning? Is it for a fire to light our path at night to protect us from danger? Whatever it is, it is the gift of grace. All of it is grace. Illuminating grace for the seeker. We do not know the way that we are to go, but if we seek him, he will be found of us. And that illumination for the seeker is the gift of his grace. Is it for comfort when the enemy of our human life, death, which has not yet been put under the feet of Christ forever, has entered your home, has taken someone you love, has needlessly, pointlessly, unexpectedly struck you where you hurt the most? If you need comfort, then it is of his grace. I've stood by the body of those that I love. And I never thought before that moment 
of the overwhelming sufficiency of the grace of God. But as I looked into the face of my father, the first time that ever happened to me, someone I love very dearly, the words of Paul came to me when he said, Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I learned that day that as much as I loved my father, I would not take him back if I had to give up the knowledge of the comfort of the grace of God. When you're weak, which is all of the time, if it is strength that you require, strength for living and, yes, strength for dying, all of it is grace, abounding, overflowing grace, saving grace, sustaining grace, grace that convicts us, grace that preserves us, blessed, precious grace. He is the God of all grace. Now notice what he says he will do for us in verse 11, or the latter part of verse 10. He says, first of all, he will perfect us. Now the word perfect in, a, in the Greek, in its normal usage, was a word used to describe uh, what a doctor did when he set a broken bone. He would take something that was broken and put it back together. It was also used variously when somebody had to supply something that was missing. And it was a word used to describe what a fisherman did when his net was torn and he mended the net. Whatever you are missing, the grace of God will supply it. He will perfect you. He will set the fracture. He will mend the net. Then he says... He will confirm you. Now, the word confirm means to make permanent and to render immovable. To, to make permanent and to render unmovable so that once God confirms you, once he settles you, you will never again be moved. It says that he will strengthen you. And then it says that he will establish you. The word establish is an architectural term. It means to lay the foundation of a building on bedrock. To lay the foundation on a rock so that no matter what comes, it will not be moved. Consistency is the practice of victory, but the consistency that we require is from Him because His is the might. It is all the gift of His grace. Just a final word about the remainder of the chapter. I would say that companionship is the peace of victory. You know, the finest thing, the most marvelous gift that God has given us outside of our salvation is the companionship, the love, the fellowship, the family of faith that we enjoy. He names two men here. He names Silas or Silvanus. Silas was one of those without whom the gospel would never have spread. He was a man willing to be number two. 
to stand by the side of Peter, to stand by the side of Paul, to go into the background in order that the gospel might go forward and how we need people like Silas. He mentions later in uh, verse 13, Mark. John Mark, who fell from his steadfastness, who was sent away in shame, John Mark, whom Paul would not trust again. And yet in his later years, when Paul writes, he says to a friend, send, send this and that uh, to me and send Mark, I need him. John Mark, evidence that God stands ready to give us great usefulness whenever we repent and turn to him. Peace is ours through the family that God has given us to share it with. Victory is ours. Christ whispers it to us. His blood-bought flock. He personally, by his power and by his grace, has vanquished the power of death and of every enemy. And victory is ours as we submit to him. You know, it's not as romantic as it might be. We are not God's champions going forth to defend his honor. We don't need to defend him. We just need to proclaim him. He can defend himself. I thought as I looked over this paragraph this morning of the story of a man named Luther Bridgers. Luther Bridgers has been dead now for almost 30 years. But when he was in the prime of his life, a young adult, with a good job, a beautiful wife, two beautiful children. He was at his office one day when an urgent message came that he had to hurry home. That was all the message said, hurry home. Not knowing what the problem was, he left his office and he made his way the distance from there to his home as quickly as he could. And as he neared his street, he saw smoke billowing into the air. He turned the corner, he ran down the street toward his home to see his house in flames. Frantically, he went back and forth on the street. He went beside the house as close as he could get all around, and a crowd had gathered, and he went through the crowd looking anxiously for his family when finally word came from one who was helping to fight the fire that his wife, and his children were still inside. They burned to death. Later that week, in a rented room, Luther Bridgers wrote a poem, a poem set to music that has become one of our favorite hymns. But I don't think it is one that you would have expected him to write that week. That week, Luther Bridgers wrote, there's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low, Fear not, I am with thee in all of life's ebb and flow. Though sometimes the path, though sometimes he leads through waters deep, trials fall across the way. Though sometimes the path seems rough and steep, See his footprints all the way. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know. 
fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. I do not know your heart. I do not know your need. But I remember well, before Daddy died and I was a preacher boy, he said, when I started the seminary one day, Dr. Jeff Ray, a great godly man who taught a generation of preachers at Southwestern, Dr. Ray came into the classroom one day from a conference with a student having a hard time in his church and in his home. He was visibly shaken, and before he began the class, he said, Boys, be nice to everybody, because everybody's having a hard time. I don't know your heart. I don't know your need. But I know this, you're not alone in it. The Lord Jesus himself is with you. And no matter what it may appear today, he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And when it is time for the curtain to fall, he will still be there. And all honor and all glory and all power belong to him. Whatever you lack, the grace of God will supply. If you have never let the Lord Jesus Christ come into your life, you have neglected the one way you have to find forgiveness of sin, to find the only true life, to find peace and eternal life. If as a Christian you're trying to defend the Lord, you're trying to carry his flag, then you need to allow him to be your shield and your sword and your tower of refuge. Whatever it is that he would have you do, whenever he calls us together to worship, it is time for us to submit to his lordship. In a moment, we will sing after I pray. And as we sing, whatever your response to his will is, whether it is public or private, you'll want to do exactly what he wants you to do. You know, it is not always the will of God that the commitments we deepen and the decisions that we make be made public, often that it is. And I would say to you that no matter how small you feel the commitment to make. If God prompts you to do it publicly, then do it publicly because he will take your example and he will touch the heart of another. The only thing that you need to do is what he wants you to do. Whatever that is, do it today. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the God of all grace that you never leave us or forsake us. Father, each one of us carries, because we are unique, a unique set of hurts, a unique set of needs. I thank you that every one of them is met in the Lord Jesus. Father, take from us our bitterness, Take from us our resentment for our grief and for our suffering. Give us your presence. 
And I thank you for what you will do right now. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand, while we sing what he would have you do, do it right now and do it quickly.